But why don't we welcome Dave as he comes to preach the word to us. I'm going to pray over you if that's okay. Yes, please. Lord God, we just thank you for this man of God. We thank you for his church in Stapleford in Nottingham. and just pray that you'll bless them. Bless them this morning as they're doing church without him. Bless him as he's on this, uh, this sabbatical period and all the work that he, he puts in throughout these next few months. And we just pray this morning that you will highlight something incredible to us through the words that you've put on his heart to share with this church. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you. Good morning. Okay, just make sure my time is going, otherwise I'll be preaching till tomorrow. Really great to be here. Um, always great to be here. Always great to be with family. And uh, church is family, just in case you hadn't figured that out. Um, wherever I go in the world, I always feel at home when I'm at church. Because it's family, you know, because God is there. Because the Holy Spirit is there. And uh, thousands, Jess, thousands. No pressure. Okay, thousands. <laughs> um, I, uh, so... I spent a, f a few hours of the, early this week um, preparing a message for today, and um, you, you would have loved it. It was brilliant. You'd, you'd have been very impressed um, you know, uh, with my technical brilliance and the depth of my theological understanding, but just really felt um, impressed by the Holy Spirit to bring something different. <laughs> so, so that's what you're going to get. And I just uh, I think this kind of taps into where you are as a church and um, the stuff that you're uh, looking forward to, and, and uh, thousands, Jess. Uh, let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 1. And uh, this is what it says. This is from the ESV, the extra superb version. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizabar. Do you know where he is now? Okay, you've got all those geographical references. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. And after he had defeated Sion, the king of Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and Edre, beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed at long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go into the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negeb and by the sea coast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, to give to them and their offspring after them. Thousands, Jess. <laughs> uh, Deuteronomy is uh, it's kind of Moses' swan song. This is uh, Moses writing his memoirs, if you like. It's it's uh, it's his kind of final record of things, the things that come to mind, the things that he thinks are important before he uh, wanders off up the mountain. And that's the, that's the last that you see of Moses until the transfiguration. So Moses doesn't get to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land because he was disobedient. And we'll come to that in a moment. Disobedient. Um, but he does get to see it in the transfiguration. You remember when uh, Jesus is, uh, is transfigured, he's, he becomes radiant and shining, and uh, he has Moses and Elijah with him. Yeah? So Moses actually doesn't die, he just kind of wanders up at the mountain, and uh, the, the same way Elijah is somehow translated into heaven and pops back later to have a conversation with Jesus. But Deuteronomy is kind of his swan song, it's his final uh, message to the world. Now, you might think, what's all that about um, 11 days journey, and then he's on about 40 years? Um, this is kind of what I want to tap into this morning, that actually, if you, the geography is a little bit confusing, because um, if you, if you want to kind of track back over the years, right back to the, the time of Moses, um, it looks like, when you look at maps, that places have moved, um, names have changed, some places have sprung up and some places have disappeared altogether. Uh, but the point that Moses is making is this, 
that actually within a couple of weeks they should have made the journey from the Red Sea into the Promised Land and into the promises of God. It shouldn't have taken more than a couple of weeks, okay? But it takes them 40 years. It takes them 40 years because they were disobedient. And the first thing, if you're taking notes, this is the first thing to write down, Jess, okay? Thousands, Jess. This is the first thing to write down. The fastest route from captivity into the promises of God is obedience. The fastest route from captivity into the promises of God is obedience. We live in uh, a culture these days that um, is a kind of a do-what-you-want culture. The world around us has that all the time, doesn't it? It's this kind of whole relativism thing about, well, if it works for you, that's fine. You get on with that, and I'll get on with this. The problem that we have is that this sort of thinking has crept into the church. And in the church, we have this idea that, you know, some things that God says we can, you know, we engage with because it's okay. You know, we like the love bits. We like, you know, all the God will provide for me bits and all those sorts of things. But then when God starts to say things like, don't cheat, don't lie, don't steal, um, you know, leave your neighbor's wife alone, uh, don't commit adultery. Put God first and love everybody. Sometimes it gets a bit more difficult, doesn't it? And we start to think that we can pick and choose the things that we are obedient to. Or is it just me? Are you with me? Okay. You'll, did you all have a late night? <laughs> okay. So uh, one of the things that we need to learn straight out and one of the things that is kind of the under pinning message that Moses has here in Deuteronomy is actually if you do what God says it works out that actually if you are obedient you get to the promises and the, the good stuff much more effectively much more efficiently quicker and easier yeah now I, I, that's there's an instant kind of battle going on in our minds with that because we think we know better than God We honestly think we know better than God. That's the whole nature of sin. When we sin, okay, we are saying we know better than God because we think it's okay to do this, even though God has said it's not okay to do this. Are you with me? And the thing that we've, we've failed to grasp, or most of us fail to grasp, is that actually God knows what he's doing. God has a plan. God has a purpose for our lives. God has set out a way of doing things that lead to fruitfulness, a way of doing things that lead to fulfillment, that lead to all of the things that you're longing for, or at least the things that you think you're longing for. Sometimes those things turn out to be slightly different, don't they? That, that we thought we wanted something and actually it was something else. But God knows what it is. God knows the real thing. And we find those things much more quickly, much more effectively when we are obedient. Because we put ourselves, when we are obedient, in the place where God can get to us. We put ourselves in the place where he can bless us and where he can do all the things that he promises. Now, you might think, um, well, you know, he's God. Surely he can just bless me anywhere, anytime. Well, yes, he is. But he's set up some rules. He's set up some principles. He set up ways of doing things, and as we do those things, we put ourselves in the place where God is ready to say, okay, here comes the blessing, because you followed, because you were obedient, because you did the right thing. There's this um, strange kind of doctrine going around in the church at the minute, which has been labeled hyper-grace. I want you to watch out for that one as well, because we do live under grace. Uh, grace... Um, God's riches at Christ's expense, okay? That's good, isn't it? Write that down if you're making notes. Grace means that God, even though we don't deserve it, and even though we haven't done anything that could earn it, He blesses us. He comes and He touches our lives, and He saves us, and He sends the Holy Spirit to empower us and help us become everything that He created us to be. Hyper-grace has this thing that actually... Because God loves me, I can do anything that I like and it's okay. And that really does not work if you read your Bible. 
Okay? People think that it's only in the Old Testament where God has clauses and conditions. You've clearly not read the New Testament. Okay? Let's start with Paul's letters because just about every time Paul talks about God blessing us and, and helping us and showing his grace towards it, it's off the back of him saying that we should do this or we should do that or we should be something else. Now, grace assures us that we are saved because of God's great love for us, because of the cross. It assures us that that can never be taken away from us. But life still has consequences for the things that we do. And please note, it's not punishment, it's consequences, okay? That when you sin, there are consequences for your sin. And God does not promise to take those consequences away. Hello? He will bless us in the midst of those consequences, but he doesn't promise that he will take them away. So obedience to what God calls us to and the direction God wants to take us in and the lives that he wants to live, obedience is the one sure thing that gets us into the place of blessing, that gets us into the place of fruitfulness and and the place where we really feel like life is how it should be. Hello? So three or four people are nodding. Everybody else is looking at me like I've come from a different planet. (laughs) Okay, but that's okay. I'm used to that. So, what then happens is they, they, um, so why does it take them 40 years? Well, they rock up to the banks of the Jordan, and you know the story. Moses sends the spies into the promised land, and despite our 12 spies, they come back. Ten of them give a bad report. You know, there there are lots of people in the promised land. I don't think they're going to give it up easily. You know, there's going to be fights. We we saw armies, we saw big walls, walled cities, and we saw, um, you know, it's, it's how you said it was. There's milk and honey. It's full of fruit. You know, it's a lovely place, but they're not going to give it up lightly. And we saw what looked like the Nephilim. Now, if you don't know anything about the Nephilim, the Nephilim were the sons of unions, supposedly, between angels and earth women, okay? And uh, these, these sons of those unions were purported to be giants and have special powers, as you might expect, you know, uh, in that kind of scenario. Um, whether they saw, whether they just saw a couple of tall people or <laughs> who knows what they saw. But they come back with this report which is designed to instill fear into the people so that they won't make the journey and they'll do something which sounds a lot easier and a lot safer. But of course, Joshua and Caleb come back. They are men of a different spirit, the Bible tells us, and they bring a different report. And what do they say? They say, if God is with us, we can surely do this. If God is with us, we can surely do this. Now, just think about that for a moment because... God has told them, first of all, God has told them, this is your land. I am giving you this land. I, I will be with you. And, and as you, you know, do what I tell you to do, live like I've told you to live, you know, get, get the armor on and get out there, okay? I am going to give this land to you. It's a gift from me, okay? He's already told them that. He's already given them a, an outline of what the land is and, and, and where they're to go. If God is with us, well, he's already said. (laughs) And add to that, now just think about it. They're a couple of weeks away from having escaped from Egypt. They're a couple of weeks away from God having done the most amazing signs and wonders and miracles in front of not just them but the whole of Egypt to show that he is their God and he is alive and he is the God of miracles and you better not mess with him. He's just done all of that in front of them, it's only a couple of weeks ago and they're standing on the borders of the promises of God and they're like, "Uh, I'm not sure about this. What are you not sure about? What are you not sure about? Is this not the God who says, I will never leave you or forsake you? Is this not the God who says, I will not cause you to stumble or fall? Is this not the God who makes promises and is the promise keeper. Is, the, is it not that God? You know, but they waver. They waver. Uh, and uh, 
when Moses tries to kind of push the agenda of going forward into the promised land, uh, they, they start to get rebellious. And so Moses, in his own weakness, you know, goes to God and says, we can't do this. And so they, off they set on a journey for 40 years around the wilderness. Now, that might sound a bit harsh, but that's how long it took to fix things. Now, when you listen to this stuff, uh, you know, there are applications from this for us as a church, for you as a church. There are applications for this on a personal level as well. You know, that, that maybe you have felt in your life like you've been wandering around in the wilderness. Maybe as a church you've had, you know, a, a season or seasons of, of, you know, what on earth is going on and it feels like we're just kind of, we don't know what to do next. We're just going around in circles. Didn't we see that palm tree last week, you know? It just, and 40 years of it is a long time. But in that wilderness situation, God was doing something. God was at work. God was changing things. And so they weren't just going around in a circle, but it was more like a helix that every time they went around, they went higher and higher, that something was changing, that things were getting better. And as they came out of the wilderness, they came out of it a nation. They came out of it with a proper army. They came out of it united and focused, and, and they came out of it worshippers and God followers, and were ready to plow into the promised land and into the promises of God. God did all of that in the wilderness, and it's interesting when you look at the things that God did. So, um, you know, we, we, uh, there's already been some comments this morning about faith. Let me nail faith down for you, because um, Sometimes I think people think faith is, uh, you have to have this kind of super spiritual feeling or something. You know, I suddenly feel like I'm 20 feet tall and can leap small, tall buildings in a single bound. And, you know, if I rip my shirt open, there's an S emblazoned on my chest and all of those sorts of things. Faith is a decision. Faith is the decision that says, I will do what God says. Faith is the decision that says, I will trust God, so I will go where he says go, and I will do what he says do. That's faith. Sometimes, uh, you know, faith is hard work, and you actually, you don't feel like it. But doing it is faith. It's not, it's, faith is different from belief. You know, the, the Bible says the, the, the devil believes and he trembles, because he knows the truth. Okay. So the, the devil believes. Faith is a level of believing that puts us in a place where if God says do it, I'm doing it. If God says go here, I'm going here. If God says live like that, I'm living that. If God says empty your bank account into the church's bank account, I'm doing that. Okay. Somebody's laughing. You wait while God says it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm serious, okay? Uh, we, we lose track of the fact that actually what should be the most important thing in our lives, the most important thing in our lives should be following Jesus. What is the top of Jesus' agenda? The church. Why is the church the top of Jesus' agenda? Because the church is his answer to the problems of the world. We, all of us, the church... Are the, are the solution to the ills of the world. We carry the message that will set people free. We, we carry the understanding coupled with the power of God that will help people to live lives that are fruitful and productive and are focused and centered around Jesus. And, and the, the thought that we, God might call us to empty our bank accounts into his bank account actually... It makes me smile as well because, you know, it's not much in my bank account. <laughs> but if he does, but you know, he may do that. Hello? For the sake of building his church, for the sake of the kingdom of God and lives being touched and changed by the power of God, people finding Jesus. People, let me put it in the simplest way I can, people getting their ticket to heaven. That's why the church is here. It's not to give you a buzz on a Sunday morning. I'm glad if you get a buzz. I'm really happy for that. But that's not why the church is here. The church is here to worship God 
with everything that it is and everything that it has. And worshipping God means doing what God says. Which means when he calls us to do something, we do it because we know it's the right thing to do. And because we make a decision in faith to be obedient, knowing that God will never let us down. Hello? So faith is quite a big issue. And um, as you look at what's going on in, uh, in the wilderness, you see that even after all of those miracles and everything else, uh, God is there doing faith-building things for them every day. There's a, a pillar of cloud by day that leads them where they have to go. There's a, a pillar of fire by night. If they have to travel by night, the pillar of fire guides them in the darkness. That every day, God feeds them with manna and quail. That water springs out of rocks because they need water and there isn't any around. So what does God do? He causes it to spring out of... How does that happen? Spring out of a rock. Their clothes do not wear out. Now, I know that would be an issue for some of us, girls. You know, that we have to have, you know, the latest trendy and we want things to wear out because we want the new things, you know. But he caused their clothes not to wear out. And day by day, they were surrounded by miracles that were there designed to build faith in them, for them to understand that God is the one who, who will guide them, who will provide for them, who will give them everything that they need. Forty years of that has got to build some trust, hasn't it? Has got to build some uh, focus that says, you know, God will take care of us. They learned to worship. One of the significant things that happens in 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness is the tabernacle. That God gives Moses instructions to build a big tent which will be the place of worship, which will be the place where they come and meet with God, which will be the place that will be the focal point of the community. When you look at the instructions for how the camp is to be laid out, uh, it's really interesting because the tabernacle is right at the center and if you took an overhead view, the camp is in the shape of a cross. Right at the center is the place of worship, the place where they meet with God. He taught them how to worship. And it's really interesting that actually God gives them instructions for the tabernacle and uh, instructs them to build the tabernacle, that he meets with them in the tabernacle. And right up to the time of David, there's a tabernacle, a place where you meet with God. Where does it all go wrong? Well, it, it kind of starts to go wrong when they build the temple because actually there's nowhere in the Bible where God says, build me a temple. Now, he gives some instructions on what to do because he doesn't want it all to go completely pear-shaped. But God didn't say, build me a temple. He said, build me a tabernacle. Hello? A place of worship, a place of intimacy, a place where God calls us to, a place of his making. Because we are called to be worshippers. It's our primary um, role. It's our primary response. It's our primary duty in God is to worship Him. What is the first commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength. And what's the other one? Yes, we'll have all of it anyway. Are you with me? He, he, God institutes corporate worship. He provides a place for them where they can bring their sacrifices and where they can worship and where they can meet face to face with him. And it changes the life of the community. It makes them stronger. In fact, it, it, I think the institution of the tabernacle is what first starts to make them into a community rather than just a bunch of fleeing slaves. Yes? So, there's the whole faith issue. There's worship. They have to learn to fight. Because even though they're in the wilderness, they're wandering through land constantly, wandering through land that belongs to other people. And there's a lot of them. Okay, At the point that they cross the Jordan into the Promised Land, um, scholars estimate there's about 2 million people. Now imagine in a place that is short on natural resources, like a wilderness, that you have a city there that is, you know, literally just surviving on all the resources that are there, the, the few resources that are there, and a couple of million people show up on your doorstep, 
that's going to be quite a challenge for you because they're going to be taking all your resources. They're going to be taking your water. You know, they're going to be scrumping. Can you imagine two million people scrumping? There will be no fruit left for a hundred miles. You know, and obviously you don't want that. Obviously that's, that's threatening your way of living. It's threatening your way of life. It's threatening, you know, your hold over the, over the land. It's threatening your authority, all of those things. And quite clearly, if you want to remain in control and make sure you've got all the goods, you're going to come out with your armor on and your sword sharpened. And the Hebrews had to learn to deal with all of these things. They had to get together an army. They had to learn to fight together. Hello? They had to learn to fight together together you know when people teach about spiritual warfare the the go-to verses are usually Ephesians 6 aren't they where Paul talks about the armor of God one of the things that Paul doesn't actually say there but actually if you go with the imagery that he uses is unmissable but most of us miss is the fact that Roman soldiers which is the armor he is describing Roman soldiers never fought on their own a centurion never said to a Roman soldier, you go out over there and you have a go at that lot. You know, uh, we'll be right behind you. Off you go. They fought as a unit. They fought as an army. Their shields were designed to lock together as a, as a primary form of defense. If there's nobody standing next to you, who are you going to lock shields with? The Hebrews had to learn to, to become a unit. They had to learn to become a community, to become a unit, to work together and to fight together to see the purposes of God achieved. Are you getting the message? Okay. There had to be changes in um, the way they did things. So there, there are quite significant changes in terms of leadership structure in the wilderness. Because what was happening was Moses was doing everything. So any problem, any issue, um, you know, that, that was happening within this massive group of people, it all landed on Moses' desk, okay? And they expected him to make a judgment and to sort things out and to speak into things consistently, everything. Everything landed on Moses' desk. And so they went to Moses and they said, Moses, we have to stop this because otherwise it's going to kill you. So we have to do something different. And Moses, being a leader, was clearly a little bit reluctant, but in the end he gives in and, and they talk about how they're going to do that. Uh, the first thing about this is, you know, um, the thing about leaders is this, and I'm going to whisper so the leaders don't hear. The thing about leaders is this, they do like to do everything. They like to be in charge, okay? They like to have their finger on the pulse. One of the things that, that you, if you know anything about pastors, pastors always twitch over the chairs. Seriously, I, I've been doing this for a lot of years now, and I, I always, no matter who has put the chairs out, I'm always adjusting them, okay? Because that's what we like. Because, do you do that? Is it you? <laughs> okay. Because we want everything to be right. We want everything to be good. We want people to feel a part of things and at home and comfortable. And we want it, you know, we want you to be glad that you're in church and happy to come and be here, you know. And that's kind of what drives us, really. But we have to get to the place where we realize that it's not our job to do everything. When somebody, as has happened to me on a number of occasions, when somebody comes to me, literally as we're just starting the first song of worship, and taps me on the shoulder and says, Pastor Dave, there's no toilet paper in the ladies' toilet. You start to get the picture, okay? Now, seriously, I have no problem with putting toilet paper in the ladies' toilets, you know? Um, in fact... One of the things that I do regularly at our place, and we've got lots of toilets in our place, is I will go and clean the toilets. I, I, I do it because it's good for me to do that. You know, it's good for my humility. I mean, I'm not running away with myself here. I'm still prepared to get stuck in on the dirty jobs. Sometimes I do it because it has to be done and everybody else is busy. You know? So I'm not, a, I'm not averse to doing those things. I'm quite happy doing those things. That's not what they pay me for. Okay. 
So I will never let go of those things in that sense. I'll, I never want to become too big. If you think you're too big to clean the toilets, then there's something wrong. Okay? But actually, if we're family and if this is our house, we all have a role to play in taking care of those things. Why do you, you know, tapping me on the shoulder, there's no loo paper in the ladies' toilets. Do you know where the loo paper is? Um, yeah, there's a storeroom at the back of the kitchen, isn't there? Uh-huh. Do you know where the ladies' loo is? Well, yeah, I've just been there. Okay. What, you want me to leave the service now? And We each need to take responsibility for the things that we can take responsibility for. And we do have to examine as we move forward leadership structures and how they work and whether they fit what's going on. Because things change. Numbers change. Uh, culture changes. And we each have to be good servants and understand that, you know, our role can change as well. That our role might have been to have been a trustee or an elder or a life group leader or the Sunday school leader or whatever that is uh, for the past 10 years, but actually we're entering a season where somebody else needs to pick up that baton and God has something different for us to do. That can be really hard. So um, I've um, a few weeks past my 63rd birthday. I know I don't look it. You don't have to say it. It's, a, it's all right. But we're just gearing up for a transition at our place because um, Russ, my associate pastor, he is our guy who's going to take over from me. We're, we're gearing up for a transition. Um, the year of my 65th birthday, we're going to hand the reins over, but I'll hang around uh, for a few years just to make sure everything runs smoothly and gets into gear and support him as he takes up that challenge. But you know that's not going to be easy because I'm so used to everything being how I want it to be <laughs> that you know I'm not sure how I'm going to cope when it has to be how somebody else wants it to be, but I've still got to be there, you know, and still got to be responsible and still be serving. And you, you really want to do it like that? So we each, have to, we each have to find that place of humility where we will be flexible enough to hear what God is saying about structures and leadership and allow those changes and support those changes. And even though sometimes it might be difficult for us personally and it might be a bit of work for us personally to kind of get our heads around that and do whatever that thing is, we've got to do it for the sake of the church. So the church can continually be everything that God is calling it to be. So there were some changes in leadership structure. The, the last thing that happens in the wilderness is that people die. So uh, the Bible tells us that that whole generation, apart from Joshua and Caleb who came back and encouraged the people to go into the promised land, everybody else, apart from those two guys and Moses, died in the wilderness. So over that 40-year period, um, a whole, I guess, some of that would have been natural, some of that would have been in battle, uh, whatever was going on, but none of those people who were naysayers made it into the promised land. If we're going to engage totally in the promises of God and see those promises fulfilled in our lives and in our church, Something has to die. Because there is something in each one of us that wants to rebel. There's something in each one of us that doesn't want to be told what to do. There's something in each of us that will kick against what God is doing. And that has to die. We have, there are a number of phrases that I have banned in, in our church. One of the phrases that I've banned is, I've done my bit. What do you mean you've done your bit? So God is entitled to a bit. Well, who's the rest for? Well, it's for me, me, me. I tell you, you don't get that from the Bible. You get that from the prevailing modern culture. It's all about me, me, me. To say I've done my bit is to say I'm prepared to give God so much but nothing more. And we've got to get rid of that mentality. We've got to get rid of that attitude. What do you owe Jesus? 
You owe him everything. You owe him the very breath that you're breathing right now. <laughs> and yet it's too much. So I'm really thrilled about um, so listening to the announcements right at the beginning and the people who came out yesterday to get stuck in and help you know, do stuff. I'm really thrilled at the, we talked about the percentages there and about 25% of the church turned out. To, that's fantastic. That's, that's booking the odds. That's booking the average by about 5%. Okay. So you did well. Where were the rest of you? Where were the rest of you? This is your house. Okay. Well, it's, it's God's house, but it's the house... He's lending to you, okay? And you're responsible. This is your church. So where were the rest of you? Now, you know, I understand sometimes life, you know, there's things that you can't do. I, I know, you know, there's occasionally things that I can't do at our place. And, uh, thank, you know, I'm thankful to God there's a big enough team to make sure that it always, stuff that needs to happen, happens. There are occasions when I can't be there, you know, and I like to take my holidays because... They give them to me, so I'm taking them, you know. Um, but I, I, if there's something going on at church and I can be there, I am there. I'm not, you know, I know I'm the pastor and that they pay me, but it's not in my job description. It's not my job description to be there painting and decorating. It's not my job description to be getting the lawnmower out. It's not my job description to go and fix things and, uh, you know, I, I'm actually quite, I have problems with my hands and arms and I'm actually quite limited in what I can do now. I'm usually on the tea making rotor when we're doing these things. But I can make the tea and so I'll be there and I will make the tea. Because I live with the sense of ownership of the purpose of God, of what God is doing, of the journey that we're on. And I know that, you know, it's only making a cup of tea, but actually making a cup of tea makes the day go better. You know? Making a cup of tea makes the time after church go better. Making a cup of tea makes life group go better. I'm not just making a cup of tea, I'm enhancing fellowship. All right? And we can all and should all get involved in these things to the glory of God to see his church become everything that it's supposed to be. Got to let go of my agenda. Let that bit of me that thinks it has rights to not do stuff. <laughs> Let that bit of me die. Let that voice in my head fade away. And without killing myself, because I'm not asking you to do that, okay, but understand that this is your house. This is your church. And what you do makes a difference. What you contribute makes a difference. And I'm not just talking about your money. And you should learn to be generous with your money because the Bible says if you're generous towards God, he's generous towards you, okay? So you should learn to be generous with your money. But I'm talking about your time and your talents and the things that you can contribute to make this a, a better place to the glory of God. Are you with me? Okay, some people are smiling, <laughs> some people are not. Let me just finish with this thought. The message that God gives to Moses here is this. He says, you have stayed at this mountain long enough. In other words, for the past 40 years, they've basically been doing loops around the mountain. And he says, you have stayed here long enough. Now is the time to depart from that circuitous journey. <laughs> How, how's it going? Circuitous. That circular journey... <laughs> Now is the time to break off from that and head into the promises. That we must not be dictated to by our past. We must not be shaped by the things that are back there that happened. They happened. We can't change them. Some of it was good. Some of it was bad. Some of it was indifferent. But that does not shape our future. What shapes our future is the call and the purpose of God. And we need to be clear what God is saying to us we need to hear his voice, but having got clarity and having heard his voice, we need to put everything into pursuing his purposes. And breaking off from this wandering around the mountain, let's grab a hold of the lessons that he's learned and the things that he's done in us, and let's get on that journey across the river into the promises, because that's where the good stuff is. 
This is where we've got to take hold of faith and make a decision for ourselves that I'm going to get on this journey. I'm going to get on this march. I'm going to go over this river. I'm going to sharpen my sword and I'm going to polish my shield and I'm going to join this merry band of people marching into the promises of God. And I know I've been pulling Jesse's leg about thousands, but thousands, Jess. We're surrounded by a world that does not know Jesus. And and they think that, uh, as some of you probably thought before you met Jesus, that we're, we're all cranks. There's something wrong with us. We're a bit, you know, isn't Jesus a crutch? Yes, he is, but I have a limp. You know? The world needs to hear the message. And we're not all evangelists. We're not all the sort of people who can stand on a soapbox and preach the gospel and people come weeping tears of repentance to us and ask to get saved. We're not, that's not, that's not my gift. You know, we're not all like that. But we have to own the journey. We have to own our church We have to take some responsibility for it, and we have to think about how that applies to us, how that works through each one of us in terms of bringing Jesus to the community around us. For me, you see, I spend most of my life in church or churches. I I got to a place a few years back where I barely spoke to anybody who wasn't a Christian, and that's really not good, okay? And uh, I got introduced to golf by a couple of friends of mine, got hooked on it, Okay, love it. But here, the golf club has become my mission field. And I'll go out there, so I very often, because I'm never sure when I can get a game in, so I'm very often going down on my own, but there's always guys hanging around looking for a game because they've, they've either got no one to play with or nobody will play with them. Okay, it's, it's usually one of the two. And I'll say, let's have a game. Come on, we'll go around together. And... Um, so 18 holes on a golf course. Uh, usually, for most of these guys, the first half a dozen holes, they're swearing and cursing and blaspheming. and you know. Then usually when you get to the seventh or eighth, the question comes out, so what do you do for a living? <laughs> then the language changes and you know, it's, it's all, everything is different after that question. But I, I met a guy last week, and I, I'm going to ring our guys later on to see if they did turn up today, um, who, he was there on his own, um, he wasn't quite sure what he was doing, so I said, oh, well, come on, come and have a game with me. So we go and have a game, and um, he's actually, he was very good, so it only took him about three holes to ask me what I do for a living. And, uh, and so we're talking about church and faith and all of those sorts of things, and he's saying to me, you know, I, I, I'm really, I'm envious of you guys. I can't believe what you believe. I don't get all of that. And I'm saying, well, you know, just, you just got to take a step. It's a journey. You don't get it all on the first, you know, first day. It's a journey. Just, you just need to start taking some steps. And he talked about his wife um, who uh, had been a churchgoer, but since they'd moved here, it got a bit disconnected because she couldn't find anywhere where she felt at home. Uh, and all of that kind of thing. And it's just a really great conversation. And as we're coming off the course at the end of the game, I gave him my card. I said, the address of the church is on the back. It's 10.30 every Sunday. We would really love to see you. And, uh, you know, we, people always say they feel at home at our place. We would love to see you. We'd love to make you feel at home and help you on a journey of faith. We'd just love to do that if you can make it. And he promised me he would come and bring his wife. So I'll, I'll find out later if the actually did that. But that's me. That's, that's what I do. What do you do? Church doesn't pay me to, p- to play golf. I wish they did. The church doesn't pay me to play golf. They don't send me as a missionary to the golf course. I'm just being who God made me to be. I'm enjoying the game. I'm enjoying the conversation. And naturally, at some point in that conversation, there is a discussion about God and an invitation from me. I think it was the Bible Society who did some research a couple of years back that, that said that uh, something like 60% of people in the UK would come to church if somebody invited them. I don't know whether that's true, 
But even if it's half that, it's got to be worth making an invitation, hasn't it? Even if it's half that, it's got to be worth saying to your neighbours and your friends and the girl at the checkout in Tesco and you know, whoever's taking your money for your petrol and whatever else, you know, I go to a really great church. 10.30 every Sunday, if you can make it, here's the address. It's not hard, is it? It's not rocket science. But if we all lived in that place, uh, this building is far too small for a start. Okay, you've got to do something about something bigger. I was having this conversation earlier with, um, it was with you, wasn't it? Yes. That um, when, when these chapels were originally built, that they built them really small and then crammed seats in every available square inch of the place. Why did you not just build it bigger? You know, but the same mentality exists all over the world. We have uh, projects in West Africa where um, over the last few years we've planted a couple of churches and we've worked with other with, um, you know, indigenous churches and uh, with church planting and things. And they, they build churches that will, that will hold African style and they do cram them in, hold about 100 people. And then 12 months later it's full. And I thought, why did you not, you've got all this space, all this land. <laughs> why did you not just build a bigger building, you know? And so they're knocking back walls out and extending things and, you know. But this isn't going to be big enough. Now, if you leave it all to John and Ruth, maybe it will be. It'll get fuller, you know, but you'll cope. But if we are all making that journey into the promises of God, if we are all pursuing his purposes, if we're taking ownership of all of this, this place will not be big enough. In fact, you'll probably struggle around here to find a place that will be big enough. You're probably going to have to build something. Thousands, yes. (laughs) Because the world needs to hear Jesus. The world needs to know that God has made some promises and he's going to keep them needs to know that there is a promised land. Come with us as we go across this Jordan into this land that's filled with milk and honey. Come with us as we find our way into the presence of the God who loves us. Come with us and find salvation. What was it they said in in Acts? Come with us and we will do you good. (laughs) It's time to break off from this pattern that we have been living our lives to, this circling round this mountain, on and on and round and round, and make our way into the promises of God and see what God will do. So if you're with me, why don't you stand? And I'd just like to pray over us as we draw to a close. If you struggle with all of this stuff, you know the deal is just learning to be you. God created you and shaped you for this. And it's just discovering who we are and being relaxed about it and letting God work through us the way that he wants to work through us. So, Father, we do thank you for your goodness. We're thankful this morning that we worship a living God. We've not come to an idol made by the hands of men, but we've come to the Lord of heaven and earth, the Creator God. The one who, even though we had made our minds up that we would run away from Him, came chasing after us and saved us. You pulled us out of the pit of sin and despair that we had dug for ourselves, and you set our feet on a rock. You put a new song in our hearts. And we're thankful. And I pray this morning, Lord, that as we stand in your presence, that by your Holy Spirit you would just come and touch each one, that you would fan into flame, Lord, the things that you have invested into us, that as we seek your face just in this moment, Lord, that you would come and do something new, that you would refresh our spirits, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds that you would remind us of how gifted and how 
thoroughly brilliant we are because that's the way that you created us, that you would give us vision for the people around us to see lives changed, to see homes changed, to see schools changed, to see this whole uh, neighborhood, this whole town changed because the living God is here and working through his people, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And that you would give us hearts, Lord, that are inclined towards obedience and doing all that you have called us to. And it is the truth that we owe you everything. So how can we withhold anything from you? Help us, Lord. Help us, Holy Spirit. And I pray that the Lord would bless you. It's a lovely old Hebrew word that means to be made happy. I pray the Lord would bless you. That he would cause his face to shine on you. that he would draw close to you, that you would know his favor, that he would open doors that everybody else has told you will remain shut, that he will make a way where there isn't a way, that he will give you everything that you need for the journey, that you would feel the warmth of his breath as he speaks blessings, blessings over you and your family, And that you would know the wonderful, supernatural peace of the living God. The peace that can only come from Him. May it fill your heart and your mind. May it fill your soul and your spirit. May you live and work in a place of rest and the sure and certain knowledge that God is for you. That He is determined to bring you into a place of blessing that he will never leave you or forsake you, that he will not cause you to stumble or fall, that you will be confident in your walk because the living God has his hand upon you. I pray that you be blessed in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.